This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Finally, we have some good news about COVID with a couple of vaccines seemingly ready to go and more on the way. But we have bad news about COVID, which is the surge that we're in the middle of. Here to bring us up to date is Dr. Mel Herbert, whose years as an emergency room physician and teaching at UCLA has given him the experience to deal with this and whose service MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, has emergency department physicians everywhere sharing their knowledge and experience. Mel, good to talk to you again. How are you? It's good. Good to be back with you. Um, I am currently well, but uh, very anxious about the next few months and what it holds for us, particularly in the United States. Yeah. And before we even get to vaccines, let's talk about where we are, which is in the midst of a big viral surge, which is slamming hospitals across the country right now. How bad is this? What do the next few months look like? Um, Unfortunately, this is about as bad as it can get. Um, This is the thing that we've been worried about from the very beginning. So this virus got to us here, it actually probably started in December in the United States, but it really started moving in March and it was already starting to warm up. And we know that the warmer weather is sort of protective and that UV light and people are outside and this virus likes to be inside and it likes it when it's colder and we're all gathered together. So we saw this coming six months ago that um, if we really don't get a handle on this virus, it could explode in the winter and fall. And that's exactly what we're seeing, that the positivity rate when everybody goes out and has their tests and we look at how many are positive is going up and up and up. The number of cases is going up and up and up. And then there's this lag to the number of people that are in the ICU. So now the ICUs are filling up. And this is occurring all over the country. It's perhaps worse in the northeast right now. But here in California, where we're pretty protected because we're warmer and we tend to live outside, in the next two weeks, we could overwhelm our current ICU capacity. So we're going on to lockdowns again. So this is going to be an extremely, extremely difficult few months as a number of the public health people have said this will be the biggest public health disaster, frankly, in the last hundred years. Since you're always talking to people in emergency departments around the country, what is this like for them? They're seeing so many people, they're getting hit with maximum virus load themselves, which can decide how badly you get hit with this virus. And then you've got the long shifts. How are they doing? They're very stressed. Um, This has been a long haul and they've seen uh, this giant uh, spike coming. 
and they're all sort of taking a collective breath. But it's been it's taken a significant psychological toll. A lot of people have gotten sick, and a number of healthcare workers have died. So it's been a very stressful time. It's even more stressful, frankly, for those docs and nurses when they're driving home and they're seeing people not socially distanced and not wearing masks and trying to go to parties and. They're like, I just came from a shift trying to save people and you are doing this kind of activities that's going to spread this more. It's just very disheartening. So I really encourage people, please follow the public health guidelines because even if we can extend the number of ICU beds, we can't make more nurses. We can't make more ER and ICU docs. There's a finite number of them and we need to be able to look after people on an individual basis to give them the best care or their outcomes are not going to be as good so we've got to flatten this curve again and well speaking of that you know we already have this surge people were sadly already letting their guard down now we've had a ton of thanksgiving day travel we have got more holiday travel coming up how much of a problem might that be adding to this it can only make things worse frankly um when people gather and they gather inside in groups that are outside sort of that home pod or family pod, as we're trying to get people to do, then it can only spread more. Um, I don't think there's a model out there that says that this is not going to spread faster if people do their usual activities, which is get together with other friends and family that are outside that primary group that they live with. It can only spread faster. So that's why we're really concerned about what happened at Thanksgiving and then what will happen going into Christmas and then in the week's and month or two after Christmas could really be a, a surge on top of a surge on top of a surge. And we really have a change coming from the White House. The White House Coronavirus Task Force has sounded a warning call that the situation is dangerous, telling people over 65 to stay inside and people under 40 that though they probably don't have symptoms, they're a danger to others since they probably became infected over the holiday. The White House has never used this kind of language before. Yeah, that's a sort of a sign of how desperate it is, right? Nobody um, can downplay this anymore. You just have to go and look at the numbers. You just have to look at the hospitals and see that we are in crisis mode. Crisis mode worse than at the beginning of this pandemic. We truly are at risk of overwhelming the healthcare system um, with all of these patients uh, getting sick in a very short period of time. Again, because this is a very infectious virus that really likes to be indoors. And we've been gathering together indoors in groups that are too big and not following the guidelines. So now we have the vaccines and, and there's the good news. But we've got some big questions right away. There's not going to be enough for everybody initially, not enough to tamp down this surge for the most part. So the question is, who gets it first? I know the CDC is saying healthcare workers and people in nursing homes. But then where do you go from there? Seniors or people with aggravating conditions like obesity or diabetes or, or what? And who's going to decide this? Because the CDC is making a recommendation, but they're not making rules. They're telling everybody to handle this at the local level. Yeah, the CDC is uh, coming out with some... Uh, pretty um, specific guidelines. And as you said, uh, healthcare and frontline healthcare workers first, and then uh, to people in nursing homes that are at very high risk, for example, then I would be giving it to the people who are you know, making our food and serving us our food, or at, certainly at um, places like Ralph's and Vaughn's and this kind of thing. They're also first line workers. And then the logical way to do it is go down by risk class. So then give it to the next oldest group of people and the people who have the most comorbid conditions. And so this is actually going to be a quite massive operation to do it correctly. And so they're going to, as I understand it, give doses of the vaccine to the states and have the states implement it. 
Now, depending on which vaccine it is, you need a cold chain. So for uh, the Moderna vaccine, you just need a freezer. But for the Pfizer vaccine, you need a super cold freezer at minus 70 degrees. So they also have to work out the logistics of this cold chain and keep this vaccine uh, cold all the way up until just before they give it to you. So lots and lots of um, issues here. And there's also the concern that there might be a significant number of people who just don't want it. The real way this thing works and gets us out of this pandemic is if we get at least 70% of the population vaccinated within a reasonably short amount of time. And we're talking here like, you know, three to six months. That could get us to the other side of this thing if that happens here in the United States and across the world. But I'm concerned about how many people are actually going to want to take the vaccine. Yeah, we've got people on one side who still don't believe that this is that dangerous a thing. We've got people on the other side who are kind of anti-vaccination and and that leaves a lot of people out. Then you have some people who say, hey, I'll take the vaccine, but I don't want to be first in line. Let me see how this goes. You've got a large part of the American population that doesn't plan on getting this, at least not right away. Yeah, and that's a problem. We are really going to have to work very hard at the messaging here. I understand uh, people are, are anxious about this. They understand that this is a new vaccine. They understand that we have gone from zero, no vaccine, to a vaccine in less than a year, which has never been done in history. The good news is that there's some new technologies here. This mRNA technology is really, really an improvement on anything we've done before with vaccinations. It allows us to give you the vaccine over and over again without producing antibodies. With Pfizer and Moderna, we have now over 75,000 people who have been given this vaccine, and it looks to be very safe. Uh, Again, probably because it doesn't produce the same immune reaction the way the old way of giving virus uh, Uh, vaccines was done. So there's a lot of good news here. This feels like um, we're right before the end of the war. Um, There's still a big battle going on, but the end of the war is just around the corner. We can see it coming. And I would say to people, don't be the last soldier shot in that war. Do the things that the public health people are asking you to do, because very soon you'll at least have the option of having a vaccine that is extraordinarily effective, way more effective than we thought. We thought if it you know, was 50% effective, 70% effective at reducing disease, that'd be great. This is 90 to 95% effective and even more effective at producing reductions, radical reductions in severe disease. So the cavalry is coming, but the war's not over yet. Final thing, we're still going to have to be careful with one another for a while, though, because we still don't know whether people who have been vaccinated are shedding virus, whether they can still give the virus to other people. Yes, that's a great point. We're still going to have to do mask wearing and physical distancing until we get some data on that. Um, It does reduce disease, symptomatic disease. It does reduce severe disease. We don't know yet because they didn't do it in the studies whether it reduces shed. So you may have got the vaccine and you're not going to get sick, but you could get the virus and replicate it and you could pass it to somebody else. So that's absolutely true. For a while, we're still going to be wearing the masks and we're still going to be doing the physical distancing, even with the vaccine. Dr. Mel Herbert is an emergency room physician, also teacher, and his service, MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, has, again, emergency department physicians all over the place sharing their knowledge and experience, which is proving invaluable to saving our lives. Mel, thank you, as always. Thank you, Gil. And everybody out there, please don't be the last soldier to get shot before the end of the war. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As the Trump administration exits, a huge foreign policy problem remains, and that is Iran. This past week, the man said to be Iran's top nuclear scientist was killed, allegedly by Israel. Will that make a difference? And what does the Biden administration do 
as it comes in. Joe Serencione is a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and has been following, reporting, and researching nuclear issues in general and Iran in particular for decades. Joe, good to talk to you again. How are you? Hey, I'm just great, Gil. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start with that assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Who was he? How important was he? And will this make any difference? Well, there's no question that he used to be very important. He was the chief scientist um, back in the 1990s and early 2000s when Iran was, according to U.S. intelligence, covertly pursuing a nuclear weapons program. So he was one of the scientists that would lead in the designs of warheads, etc. Iran never came close to getting a warhead back then, didn't have the material for it, the facilities for it. And U.S. intelligence judges that the actual consolidated, dedicated nuclear weapons program ended around 2003 and has not been restarted. So the most recent uh, intelligence reports under the Trump administration are that Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program, that, that it hasn't restarted it. They're not actively pursuing such a program. But what they are pursuing is the ability to make the material that could allow them to build a bomb sometime in the future, specifically enriched uranium. They claim they need these centrifuges and these facilities to make fuel for their nuclear power reactor. But the same facilities can just spin harder, longer, faster, and make fuel that same enriched uranium up to a level that could be used for a bomb. That's the worry. Uh, in, in all of these instances, the, the role of the scientists have been uh, critical. Frakhrizadeh was uh, and has been a, a chief scientist, but he's not irreplaceable. So his death is a blow in prestige, a symbolic death, but it doesn't materially impact Iran's nuclear program currently. Okay, so where are we in terms of Iran's program? As you talked about, they are not seemingly working toward a nuclear weapon, but since the treaty was torn up, they've produced enough enrichment uranium that they could make, from what I've heard, two warheads at this point. That's right. So the, just let me just back up just a second. The whole point of the negotiations with Iran during the Obama administration and with the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese, seven nations in total, plus the entire European Union, was to find a compromise path. You couldn't get Iran to shut the whole program down, but could you shrink it? Could you freeze it? And that's what the deal did. Froze it for a generation, 15 to 20 years, and put it under a microscope. We had inspectors, cameras, seals all over the country. We tracked the uranium from Iran's mines all the way through the processing until it was stored as a gas, which Iran was doing. At the time of the deal, they had to get rid of all the extra gas they had, and we gave them a token amount they could keep, about 300 um, kilograms of gas. Well, since uh, Donald Trump tore up the deal, effectively leaving the deal in 2015, Iran has taken a series of measures to start violating its restrictions. Very careful steps, calibrated steps, steps that could be reversed, but one of those includes accumulating more uranium gas. And they now have hundreds of tons of this gas. And they could quickly put that back in the centrifuges, spin them up, and turn it into bomb material, high quality, 90% enriched uranium, in a matter of, we think, two to three months. Previously, it would have taken them over a year to do that. So Trump's bellicosity, it's his tactic of maximum pressure, as he called it, in fact, has brought Iran closer to a bomb now than when he started the campaign back at the beginning of his presidency. Well, despite calling for a new treaty, because that's what President Trump originally said he wanted to do, he's going to tear up this treaty, get a better one. He never seemed interested in that. No new treaty was ever proposed. Instead, the the thing that he seemed to do, the strategy that he seemed to be trying was building a bulwark against Iran by getting Israel and Sunni Muslim nations like Saudi Arabia to band together against Shia Iran. Has that done anything? 
No, it, it has not. And you can see that. For example, the Washington Post the, on, on Wednesday morning had an op-ed on this about judging the two strategies, the Obama strategy of negotiating and the Trump strategy of maximum pressure, of trying to coerce Iran into compliance or collapse. Iran is stronger now than it was before Trump started this. It has more influence in the area. It has increased its support for Iraqi militias, for example, for the Yemenis in the the civil war in, in that country. The idea is you could put enough sanctions that could strangle Iran economically, threaten it with war, conduct covert operations like the killing of Iranian scientists, and somehow Iran would collapse. And this was the theory of some uh, groups in, in Washington who have been campaigning for it, that the regime was fragile, that it was really on the edge. All you had to do was hit it hard enough and it would collapse. The, exactly the opposite has, has happened. And so now Joe Biden comes in with a chance to reverse course, to try to go back to that negotiating strategy and see if he can once again shrink and freeze Iran's nuclear program. One of the things that's happened since the treaty was torn up is Iran's gotten closer to China and Russia, who are now militarily more involved with Iran. So this has gone from being a regional flashpoint to a possible international one. China is putting $400 billion into Iran's energy sector. So our sanctions aren't going to have the clout that they did before. Uh, That's exactly right, Gil. I mean, one of the attractions from Iran's point of view was that they know that for their economy to grow, they need access to Western markets. Uh, I've, I've only been to Iran once, but when was, I was there, you could see the presence of Europeans. This is back in 2005. And you could see that you know they had embassies, they had hotels, they were doing business with the Iranians. But almost all of that has now been cut off um, because of the US-imposed sanctions, which by the way, don't actually sanction Iran. We don't do business with Iran. It sanctions our allies who do do business. So we would sanction Japan if they bought oil from Iran. We would sanction European banks if they did business with Iran. So that's who we're sanctioning. And so therefore, all that is more or less dried up. So Iran is in a spot. But to compensate for that, they turned to China and Russia, just as you say. And now China has a much bigger, strong uh, footprint in, inside China, a stronghold inside uh, I mean, inside Iran. And you can see that Iran is developing this sort of eastern tilt rather than the west, western tilt. This is one of the reasons our European allies want us to get back into negotiations. They want to do business with Iran because their theory, and I agree with this, is that the more connectivity Iran has with the western world, the more you can open up that country, the more you can encourage a free flow of ideas, the more you can encourage democratic tendencies inside Iran. So it's not just just let's go make money with Iran. It's how do you transform Iran? Do you do it by threats from the outside or do you do it by exchanges, by cooperation, by communication, by diplomacy with Iran? So what does Biden do coming in? Because besides what we just mentioned, that Iran is now closer and financially and militarily closer to China and Russia, there's also this feeling out there in the world that after the Iran Treaty was torn up and the Pacific Trade Treaty was abandoned, no deal the U.S makes is good for more than four years. Well, that's a very good point. Here was an agreement that was rock solid. Everyone agreed with it. When Trump pulled out of it in, um, I said 2015 earlier, I meant 2018. When he pulled out of it in 2018, he did so against the advice of his national security team, against the advice of our European allies. You may may remember this uh, this happening. The, the, uh, The French president came over, Germany sent officials, Great Britain sent officials. They tried to talk Trump out of it. He ignored them and went off on this go-it-alone strategy, listening to who? Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of, of, uh, of Israel. And, um, 
and MBS, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They're the ones who egged him on to try this coercive strategy. And I think that's what Benjamin Netanyahu is doing now. By Most people believe Israel was behind this assassination. And while the nuclear scientists may have been the victim, the real target was Joe Biden. Netanyahu has said the U.S. should not, cannot re-enter this deal. They are definitely with this assassination trying to make it more difficult for Biden to get back in, try to call Biden's hand. And they have their supporters in America. So Tom Cotton was on a TV, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas was on TV just yesterday, warning again against re-entering this deal. They want to continue the hardline policy. So what does Joe Biden have to do? Well, for one thing, he has to ignore those voices from the from the far right. He has to keep Benjamin Netanyahu as a distance. He has to tell MBS from Saudi Arabia, this is America's foreign policy, not Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. We set our own policy. Don't meddle with us. And then He's got to quickly get back in the deal. And that's relatively easy to do. That is, the U.S., there's no actual exit mechanism. We never actually left the deal. We just started violating it by putting more sanctions on, for example. He has to drop those sanctions, and he can do that with executive order. doesn't require Congress. Trump put them on with executive order. Biden can take them off with executive order and get back into compliance. And while he's doing that, open up channels to the Iranians. As, as Biden has said, we will rejoin, they use the phrase, rejoin the deal as long as Iran comes back into compliance. Well, how do you choreograph that exactly? Does, is a, a, you can't expect Iran to get rid of all its material and shut down its centrifuges and go back to where it was two years ago on, on the, the promise that the U.S. is going to drop the sanctions. Clearly, this is going to have to be synchronized. Iran's going to have to be steadily moving back into compliance while the U.S. is steadily moving back into compliance. There's no actual mechanism for this. So this will be the trickiest part for the Biden administration to go and negotiate this sequencing Fortunately, we have the help of our European allies who are already talking to the Iranians about this. And we have returning into the administration some of the same gifted negotiators who got the deal in the first place. I expect more will be added. So we'll have seasoned professionals who know how to do this, who care about doing this. And we'll have a rebuilt State Department that can once again provide the professional and technical assistance you need to carry off a deal as complex as the Iran anti-nuclear deal. We have more about Iran with Joe Cerencioni coming up here on America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to Joe Serencioni, who has been reporting on and researching the possibility of a nuclear threat from Iran for decades. And that is a problem. 
but is it the most immediate one? So are we looking at the wrong weapons? And here's why I ask this. Iran allegedly used cruise missiles to attack Saudi Arabian oil fields just last year. No nukes. And there was no retaliation, even by the Trump administration, which keeps threatening to attack Iran, but doesn't. Uh, Are those missiles a greater actual threat than a nuclear program? I say they are. You you are very astute. This is the the new threat that many analysts are pointing to. Precision uh, conventional weapons, drones, short-range missiles, medium-range missiles, the things that can actually hit targets that Iran cares about, and that that strike against Saudi Arabia proved the efficacy of that. There's concern that the Houthi rebels in Yemen now have more accurate missiles and could strike as well. Um, There's concern that Hezbollah, uh, an Iranian ally in in Lebanon, has more precise missiles that could rain down on Israel should conflict break out. So you're exactly right. Now, how do you address that? Well, you can't do that directly through the Iran deal. Remember, the Iran deal addresses the biggest threat, nuclear. Every problem we have with Iran is worse if they get nuclear weapons. So the thinking was do that first. But there are other issues like the use of these weapons, like support for Hezbollah and Hamas, like tensions with Saudi Arabia and Israel. But the thinking is, and I agree with this, that you do the nuclear deal first and then you use that as foundation. So Joe Biden has to go in, quickly re-enter the deal, quickly come back into compliance, quickly, quickly bring Iran back into compliance. But you can't stop there. This is a different Middle East now, is a different set of factors. You have to then build on that and get Iran's agreement to continue talks. And I think you can get them. As I say, Iran wants relations with the West. It wants normal economic relations with the West. That is a huge carrot, a huge advantage we could have. And we have to be smart enough to extract concessions, for example, uh, agreeing on restraints on the number of missiles you could have, agreement on limitations on tests, maybe even starting to get some dialogue underway between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They have had such dialogues in the past. Once Saudi Arabia and Israel realize that there's a new game in town, that this is a different president with a different agenda, they might be more willing to talk to their arch rival. That is the only way you're going to resolve these conflicts. It's been proven that use of military force and threats and sanctions produce the opposite of the intended um, the, the intended outcomes. Okay. Final question then, Joe, talking about that very thing. Rouhani has been open to the idea of a deal on nukes with Europe, with the United States, but a lot of people in Iran are are ticked off about things like the assassination and the killing of General Qasem Soleimani. Does the fact that there are elections next year in Iran where the moderates may be replaced with hardliners who may not want to give up nuclear weapons, does that put an extra time urgency on whatever we're going to do with Iran? It does. It's another reason why Joe Biden has to act quickly because the window will close. 
uh, as in most countries, when you have elections, it basically freezes the party in power. Politics take over. So I would say Biden's got maybe two months, January, February, March at the latest, to get the existing government, Rouhani, who's considered a, uh, uh, well, some people call him a moderate. I would say he's less of a hardliner, uh, who negotiated the deal in the first place, and and his foreign minister, Zarif, that they can be the ones to bring the deal back. It's in their political interest to do that. It will strengthen their parties in the elections. But by the time you get to March, forget it. The political season will be in, in, in full run. And it'll be almost impossible for any Iranian politician to negotiate with the United States. It'll just be too unpopular. The Iranian people liked the deal. They welcomed the deal. Maybe you remember the the Iranians dancing in the street. They thought this was the beginning of the opening uh, for Iran that they've long wanted. But since Trump, they've soured on America. They they distrust America. So you're going to have to rebuild that trust. It's going to be harder to get Iran uh, back into compliance, but I, but not not impossible. It will be almost completely impossible if you think that you can string it out, that you can somehow use the leverage that Trump gave you by these sanctions to extract more concessions from Iran beyond what they're only obligated to in the deal. And if you run this through July, August, forget it. There may not be a deal to go back to. So a lot is riding on the first few months, the first few weeks of the incoming Biden administration. Joe Cerenciani is Distinguished Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and has been following nuclear issues for decades. Joe, as always, thank you for your expertise. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. That was the famed advice about the future Dustin Hoffman's character got from his potential father-in-law in the movie The Graduate a bit more than half a century ago. A lot of water has gone over the bridge since then, and it's filled with a lot of plastic. Yahoo! Tech columnist David Pogue reported on this for CBS Sunday Morning. In the 1950s, a new material burst onto the scene that would change the world forever. The ingenious alchemy of coal and oil provides the material. Ingenious machinery presses and stamps and molds the material into a wide variety of products. Yes, it was plastic. Cheap, durable, sanitary, strong, and light. After 65 years of making plastic, we've pretty much mastered the art. What we haven't yet figured out is what to do with plastic once we're done with it. It lasts a really long time. It doesn't (laughs) biodegrade, so it just sits there. Roland Geyer, professor of environmental science at UC Santa Barbara, has studied how much plastic we throw away. We have statistics reaching all the way back to the dawn of plastic mass production, 1950. And if we add it all together, it's 8.3 billion metric tons. So if if we take that and spread it out evenly over California, the entire state of California would be covered. And uh, that would be an ugly sight. About 70% of our discarded plastic winds up in open dumps or landfills like this one. So plastic bag, probably used once between the cash register and the car. And then how long will it be here in the landfill? It will be with us for hundreds of years. But some plastic winds up in an even worse place, the ocean. Every single year, somewhere between 5 and 12 million metric tons of plastic waste enters the ocean. 
plastic in the ocean has a tendency to break down into ever smaller pieces. And these tiny pieces then get taken up even lower down in the food chain. So we know that um, it ends up on our dinner plates. There's plastic in my food? There is plastic in your food, plastic in your sea salt, and there is plastic coming out of your tab. In fact, at this rate, the World Economic Forum predicts that by 2050, our oceans will contain more plastic than fish. But wait a minute. Don't most people recycle plastic? Not exactly. Geyer says the world recycles only about 9% of all our plastic. 9%? But recycling is something we all do or are required to do in many places, or at least we feel we should do, and apparently we're completely confused by it. For instance, how come in one place they recycle glass and in another place they don't? It seems our recycling policies may need to be recycled. The National Consumers League has just released a report on all of this, and Sally Greenberg is the league's executive director. Sally, I think if you asked Americans what can be recycled and what can't, you wouldn't get two people to tell you the same thing. I don't think you can get two cities to tell you the same thing. Well, I think we're all committed to the idea of a world with less trash, less waste, less pollution. But we're also stuck in a recycling system that is at best confusing and at worst misleading and just wrong. So... A number of years ago, there was something called the Mobius Loop. We've all seen it on the cans or the bottles that we buy. It's this triangle of arrows. And that was really developed to give consumers some, some guidance about what's recyclable and what isn't. But it's really very misleading these days because companies are able to put these that Mobius Loop on products willy-nilly without really anything standing behind it. So what we uh, determined in this report that we just did uh, is that that Mobius loop does not always mean that something's recyclable, even if it appears there. And often it just indicates a type of resin that's used in the plastic. So what do you find in your study? How big is the problem of trash and recycling here in the United States? Americans generate about four and a half pounds of solid waste every single day. Only a third of that waste is recycled or composted. And even the stuff that's recycled doesn't always become new versions of its old self. For example, plastic bottles usually get downcycled and get turned into, if they're turned into anything and don't end up in a landfill or in the ocean, they get turned into things like toys or insulation or other things that can't then be reused. Uh, cardboard cartons are another good example. They can be recycled, but if they're lined with plastic, that process of recycling is costly and complicated. And, and not every curbside program in municipalities uh, actually accepts them. And recycling used to actually pay for itself. You know, sometimes more, sometimes less than the cost of maintaining a recycling program in a community, but now it's much more expensive. What happened? China, as, as we learned um, not too long ago, China isn't buying American plastic waste anymore. And cities are having to raise uh, fees on consumers. When you put a can in the recycling bin, it can be back on the shelf uh, in as little as two months. So those are uh, metal cans, number one, and glass bottles, second, are the best options if you want to be a, a good, conscientious uh, recycling consumer. And, and even of the things that can be recycled, some cannot be endlessly recyclable. And those end up in a landfill or back in the environment again. Yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty awful, and we have some some photographs in the report about how these bottles end up in you know every corner of the world, uh, clogging oceans, clogging rivers. Uh, we've got plastic bags that are a huge, gigantic uh, problem the world over. All right, so it's a big problem here and around the world. 
What can we as individuals, though, do about this? We make some recommendations in our report. Um, one is that the uh, requirement of recycling or getting uh, money, a couple cents a, a can or a bottle, uh, actually ends up in re- reducing the amount of waste, which is very, very helpful. Uh, San Francisco International Airport stops selling bottled water to the horror of the bottled water industry, but we support it. And you, there are options. You can bring your own bottle. You can fill up your bottle at, at various stations and in the airport. And we've all seen hotels and other other establishments that will have a bo- bottling area where you get clean water and you can use your own bottle. We certainly should try, if we're being good consumers and conscientious um, uh, citizens, we should try to use bottles that we carry ourselves and not constantly use plastic bottles. Right now, I think a lot of us think we see, you know, soy sauce packets and pizza boxes and candy bar wrappers and dry cleaner bags. And we think this is recyclable. And it turns out somebody has to pick all of that out by hand. And that's expensive, even at minimum wage to do. So how do we get around this? Yeah, well, there's a couple of solutions that we've recommended in in the report. One is that consumers should steer toward items that can be recycled over and over again. And in this case, it's it's cans, aluminum cans or glass bottles and jars. Refuse utensils and other single-use items when you get takeout. We recommend that when you have a plastic bag, whether it's a newspaper bag, a grocery store bag, a dry cleaning bag, I put those all together and I take it over to my local Safeway or my local grocery store and they recycle that plastic. What are the grocery stores doing? So I, I take my plastic bags and all of that to them. What are they doing with it? You put it in a big uh, canister. They've got a, a box that you put it in and that goes to a, uh, a plant that, uh, that, that picks it up and recycles those materials so that they can be used again. Otherwise, most consumers, because they don't really know and there's not a lot of good guidance out there, they will put those plastic bags in their recycling bin. And guess what? They don't recycle. Is there something that makes it clear to people on a product that we can go to that goes, hey, this can be recycled? It's a, uh, a morass right now. And it is not, we do not have that universal product that actually is meaningful and uh, accurate. But no, we have so much work to do. It's just a, uh, a ball of confusion. You know, we probably need a czar of sustainability and recycling. And our report is really meant to shed light on the shortcomings that we face and the confusion that consumers face uh, every day with the, that Mobius triangle, which at this point is pretty much meaningless. Well, let's hope for changing this and something that gives us all clarity as to what goes in the blue bin and what I stick somewhere else and what goes to the grocery store or whatever I have to do with it. There is a report from the National Consumers League on that. Sally Greenberg is the league's executive director. Sally, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Even as we struggle here in the States with COVID, Taiwan is totally open for business. People greeting one another with open arms and hugs. They're even having music festivals again, with people in crowds singing loudly with no worries. They have gone more than 230 days without a single case of domestic COVID-19. How have they been so successful? CBS News correspondent Ramey Innocencio is in Taipei. Thousands dancing, DJs spinning, everyone COVID and carefree. Taiwan hosted the Ultra Music Festival this November. Its Miami flagship show canceled because of the pandemic. The last time Taiwan and its 23 million people reported a COVID case was April 12th. That's why some Americans have moved to Taiwan too, like Welly and Dina Yang. Our friends in, uh, in the U.S. are like, I hope every day you realize what a great decision you made. The Yangs are now rebooting their lives from Los Angeles to Taiwan's capital, Taipei. Their children now physically go to school. In California, it was all virtual. The kids were not in school for six months. I got emotional that first day when we took them. And Dina is battling breast cancer. I am immunocompromised, so um, even if school went back for the kids, uh, it would not be wise to send them. In Taiwan since September, the Yangs have been free to move after a mandatory two-week quarantine. Taiwan, under President Tsai Ing-wen, has been praised worldwide for its COVID success. From January 3rd, screening air passengers from Wuhan. Border defense starts on arrival, well-publicized on national television. Passengers queue up for health interviews, scanning QR codes to register names and phone numbers. Social media posts show people getting sprayed with disinfectant, along with their bags, then driven in a designated quarantine taxi to their quarantine hotel. A mandatory two weeks. Meals are left outside the room three times a day. People who break quarantine can be fined more than $33,000. The authorities know based on your phone signals, not GPS, to avoid major privacy issues. After the hotel, seven more days of temperature checks from home. The health department calls each day and then you're cleared. New COVID flare-ups were quickly contact traced and Taiwan has a national mask mandate beginning this week. Lawmaker Wang Dingyu says Taiwan conquered COVID with transparency and science. Mandate is good for us, for people, for our kids. At their new home, the Yangs are happy to be in one of the safest places in the world. We've just really learned to just appreciate every day and be grateful for every day that we have. And the Yangs are self-employed with family in Taiwan, and that makes their transition from Los Angeles to Taipei that much smoother. As for what Taiwan did, that really would be tough to do in the United States because of a difference in culture and the concept of personal freedoms. And as for here in China, what the government, the Communist Party says, the people do. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Change Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey.